The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. So listen, everybody that's joined here uh, for this hour-long conversation with Dan Arbus, I certainly appreciate those that are constantly coming back day after day as I do these conversations. I always like to make it a point that I'm not a journalist, I'm not an anchor, I'm just somebody trying to uh, engage with followers, get people out of their echo chambers with thoughtful conversations. And candidly, when I do my prep for a lot of this stuff, it's more just to get a rough sense of the guest's views and more just kind of have a, a live, unscripted conversation. This will be a... Uh, a conversation ranging from investments to geopolitics, and no one's better at talking about the two than Dan Arbus, who I've had a, the pleasure of getting to know over the last several uh, years here, spoke once or twice on the phone, and very much enjoyed the conversation. So, uh, Dan, I appreciate you spending the time with us here today. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. All right, so, Dan, you know, you've, you've done the media rounds quite a bit in the past. I don't know how many people might be familiar uh, with you here, but let's level the playing field. Talk about uh, who you are and, and your background and what you've done in your career. Okay. So first of all, Michael, thank you very much. And to everybody who's on this, uh, uh, in this space right now, I hope that we'll have an open and, uh, and interesting conversation. So uh, Michael, uh, I think, as you know, I have a little bit of a non-conventional background for a financial investor. Uh, I studied constitutional law, geopolitics, and geoeconomics, and set my my career course around being involved in some way in uh, important developments in 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 economics and geopolitics. So at the beginning of my career as a lawyer, I was a privatization advisor, and I advised on the creation of the mass privatization programs of the Czech Republic and Russia, uh, and continued to stay involved in economic transition in the emerging markets as an investor uh, after privatization. So I started out as a private equity restructuring investor and post-privatized uh, companies in Eastern Europe and Russia. And then I eventually launched a multi-asset class hedge fund to follow uh, a handful of large thematic, what some would think are macro calls from 2003 to 2014. And those calls, in effect, were expressed 
with corporate securities, macro instruments like currencies, commodities, and interest rates. And really, that's that's it. So it's a across the capital structure, debt equities, uh, derivatives, and um, um, macro instruments. And what I was trying to do is express a long-term, multi-year perspective on the continuation of economic transition in the former socialist world, primarily China, through its phases of uh, reform dating all the way back to Deng with industrialization, urbanization, which involved fixed asset investment, uh, which was very good for mining stocks in the mid uh, aughts, uh, and then eventually China's transition to a consumer economy. So I've been following China for about 25, almost 30 years. Uh, also participated in the housing short, the reflation trade, and uh, what I described at the time about five or six years ago as a virtualization, which was the adaptation to big data and the use of big data and cloud-based assets for industrial management. So the, the, the IoT, basically Internet of Things arc from edge of net censoring to uh, data processing, data analytics, and remote management of industry, I uh, closed my hedge fund in 2014, which had been uh, it had grown to about three and a half billion dollars at its peak. To really cross over, take time out to think about where the world was going, and try to act as a principal uh, entrepreneur in helping to solve some problems, leveraging the emerging technologies. And, you know, that all boils down to, you know, a big story that that comes down to following what's going on in the world and seeking to be engaged in uh, in developments helpfully, either as an advisor or as a principal. So I'm glad you mentioned the interaction between macro and the geopolitical sphere, because I think, and I fall for this too, most people, when they think about macro, they think about asset class movement, but they don't necessarily think about how politics would play into what's going on with their investment thesis and how those political landscapes changing might impact whether they want to stay in their current portfolio positions or not. So there's been a lot of this talk about, uh, let's call it a, a new world order, right, that may be forming. A lot of this started really when Russia first went into Ukraine, Biden alluded to the idea. A lot of the conspiracy theories have been talking about new world order for a while. And my experience with new world order goes back to my days as a kid watching wrestling WCW when there was an organization uh, called new world order for those that are are, uh, uh, maybe familiar with that side. So I I want you to kind of talk about the changing geopolitical landscape here, because there is this belief out there that America's dominance will it's very hard to unseat, but it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are some new alliances that are forming and there's bigger implications on what may be to come. Okay, so there's a lot in that question, and I'm going to try to respond first by, by, by proffering a big idea or a big thesis, which is that information technology and the developments of, of data analytics have provided abundant knowledge and possibilities 
but society's ability ability to manage and adapt to the new technologies has been lagging. And the reason for that, I really think, is that the generation of leadership across society, from industries to industrial sectors, including healthcare, most importantly, which is a huge part of the U.S. economy and the global economy, and politics, of course, the entire cohort of leadership is of a generation that predated the advances of technology. And so what we've got is a basic timing mismatch. You know, the generation that was educated in the 1980s and even the early 1990s, you know, operates with its heuristics and what it learned when it formed its own world vision and has a lot of problems understanding and fully applying and adapting to the talk, the technologies that, that, have, that have been created. So if you look, for example, at politics as a, as, a, as a discipline, social media has enfranchised everyone in the world and made them participants in global affairs. The current problem that we have in geopolitics has to do with a generational mismatch. And it's not so much uh, technology-related as it is a failure of the current generation of leadership to adopt to the changes that are taking place in the world. So the United States emerged from the Cold War in a position of hegemony, and there was a moment in time, many years, where we tried to propagate our model of democracy and, 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 and market economics to the rest of the world, which is a natural instinct, except that it really didn't work. We, we, we sort of took, sat back on our laurels during the two uh, Clinton administrations, uh, and there were problems in Somalia and elsewhere that we couldn't, and in Bosnia, that we didn't get our arms around. And then after September 11th, we pivoted to the war on terror and moved with the right intentions toward regime change in Iraq, for example. But what we didn't really understand was that other countries and other cultural traditions were not necessarily waiting with the infrastructural capability to adopt the American model of democracy. So you had debacle and and quagmire in 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 Iraq and in Afghanistan, and eventually after the W. Bush administrations, we saw in the Obama administration and continued in the Trump administration and in the Biden administration with a retrenchment and a withdrawal from world leadership on the part of the United States, and so. When we bring the moment down to Ukraine, I think, you know, the Ukraine war was really, I mean, there's no, you know, I have no sympathy for, you know, or appreciation of Putin. Let's assume that Putin is, is, is a pariah, okay? We all agree that Putin is bad news, and we don't have to get into that. But we always have to ask ourselves, what's our own role in bringing about a situation? And the Ukrainian situation, I frankly believe, was caused or encouraged 
by the laziness of thinking and the neglect of our own alliance members. We failed to reconceive NATO for a post-Soviet Europe. So we kept the military alliance facing Russia. Justified or not, Russia felt threatened by. And we further compounded the situation by leading Ukraine along to believe that they were going to join they were going to join NATO. And so Russia saw that as a provocation. You know, Germany, in the meantime, a NATO member and others in Europe have continued to do commerce and depend on Russian oil. So we're now in a situation where we're fighting with an important supplier, oil, so energy and resource supplier. We're sanctioning the oligarchs who are, you know, investors, but Basically, they, they serve at the pleasure of Putin, and we don't have any real military options, as Biden has made very clear in his, you know, in his what I would call relatively weak uh, deterrence. And so on the Chinese side, we've done the exact same thing. We've used the same Cold War playbook of great power rivalry which was created by the same, frankly, old white men who prevailed over the Cold War with Russia. And we have wasted time during the Trump years and even in the Biden administration has been at least as bad. Rather than engaging with our allies while China still needed the Western allies for exports for their economy and also for help in, in in raw material acquisition, rather than engaging with our NATO allies and coming up with changes to the WTO structure that would be required for China to continue to participate with the rest of the world, intellectual property protections, you know, limiting tr- subsidies and the like. We alienated our allies and sent everybody in a different direction and have now labeled China a great power rival of ours. We wasted the years of the Trump administration uh, in a trade conflict that was illegitimate and unnecessary. It, it didn't even exist if you counted the numbers correctly to include our sales of foreign-owned, wholly-owned subsidiaries of American companies. And the Chinese must have been really enjoying it because they were going about using the Belt and Road Initiative to lock up all the raw materials that they were lacking so that they can create a vertically integrated consumer economy, very similar to the United States' economy, and now lock us out of selling just at the time when our reshored operations, which are technologically driven, are able to compete economically with Russia's, and everybody is suffering the same pressures on employment, ultimately, that that the United States is by technology, China is as well. So we have a great great opportunity now, and we live in a world of abundance, where there's enough food to feed everybody on the planet. There is enough knowledge to work arrangements out, but what's lagging here is 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 our social capabilities and our social infrastructure and leadership. That's, that's extremely well articulated. I'm curious, Dan, your viewpoint on China's growing ties with Russia and how that 
might play into some of their ambitions around Taiwan, right? Because that's sort of the the real boogeyman, I think, that people seem to think that, you know, just as Russia goes into Ukraine, China uses that as sort of the the excuse to do their own military actions there. Talk through some of your understanding of what the China-Taiwan situation looks like and how you think it might play out. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yes. I mean, there are similarities. Crimea, for example, was always the location of a deep water seaport for Russia. And so it was understood back in 2014 to be a strategic imperative for the Russians. I don't believe that Ukraine, one way or the other, is apart from the human dimension, is a strategically important country for the United States and even for NATO, except that NATO has made noises about including Ukraine. So now is in the awkward position of having to come to the rescue. And also, nobody likes a, you know, a bully and an aggressor. But we have to acknowledge that we ourselves have been portrayed that way, for example, in the wars on Iraq. The real strategic challenge, as you say, Michael, is the unsettled status of, 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 of Taiwan. Taiwan is a world semiconductor leader. It's a very strategic location. And our policy there has been very similar to the policy, in, in some ways more provocative, than the policy that we've had in flirting with Ukraine for NATO. And that has been to encircle Russia and create alliances in Asia that are, are potentially perceived, well, we are, I believe are perceived as a threat to China. We don't have, we know that we don't have aggressive expansionist inclinations, but we don't know how other people perceive our talk and our our sense of pride and sense of wanting to spread our own values. And so the danger in allowing Putin to succeed in the Ukraine is it sends the wrong message to China that does feel threatened by Western allies and sees Taiwan in very much the same way as we saw Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when Khrushchev wanted to put nuclear weapons in Cuba. It's China's backyard. And so the best outcome that we can have is the status quo that was created by Henry Kissinger over 50 50 years ago in China, and that is to leave Taiwan's status as it is, which is undefined. Are they in China? Are they out of China? They're not an independent country, but they're not a part of China. And I think that China would be okay with that if we were able to come to terms with them on other things, 
And most importantly, if our policymakers were prepared to recognize China as the historical great power that it always has been until these last couple of few hundred years. China is a great power, as are other major populous nations in the region like India. And if you look at what uh, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi said today when they made that declaration of the new world order, they talked about we're going to have a new democratic world order that's multipolar. You know, what, what the Chinese foreign minister said, which I found to be really resonant, was our striving for peace has no limits. Our upholding of security has no limits. And now the really important words are opposition toward hegemony has no limits. What I hear in that, forget about Russia, okay? They're just troublemakers. They're not relevant. It's really all about the United States and China. What I hear China saying is we will not accept the idea that the United States runs the world any longer. We want to be recognized as a great power on the global stage. And believe me, China does not have the former Soviet Union's territorial ambitions. They don't have the need for more territory. They have a billion, 400 million people, 300 million, over 300 million of which are middle class millennials. They're highly educated. China's Communist Party understands, like everybody else who is in power, they understand how to stay in power. And the only way they can stay in power is to keep what they call social harmony, keep the tacit cooperation of their people. Otherwise, they're going to face a really difficult situation. So China wants a war and wants a competition with us. And I believe that there's enough of everything in the world for us all to be able to share markets, to trade freely, and to share growing prosperity across systems. Now, we don't have to like China's surveillance uh, uh, society, which is inconsistent with our sense of freedom. We certainly don't have to like their, their, their mistreatment of minorities, especially the Muslims, the Uyghurs. But we can do business with them, as Thatcher said of Gorbachev, and that was the beginning of the change of the, of, of the, of the Cold War uh, world order. We can deal with China. We just have to come to the table and recognize them as equals. All right. So, Dan, I want you to go back to sort of the macro mindset for a bit. So a lot of things are changing geopolitically. Uh, I hear you on doing business with China, but, you know, there's been quite a bit of headline risk, for example, when it comes to China stocks, right, for anybody that's looking to allocate there. And those, you know, that's been a beaten down area for a while. Now, of course, we're talking about secular trends as opposed to these kind of short intermediate term uh, periods of volatility. But from an asset allocation perspective, how would you think about playing through what may be coming in terms of this kind of new world order uh, where Russia, China are, uh, and more China, obviously, are more on an equal footing with the U.S., or at least trying to be? Okay. I'd like to believe that global leaders are rational enough to understand where to draw the line on on rivalry. In other words, Biden is maybe going too far 
in terms of reassuring Russia of what it will not do. But it is absolutely a fact that extended nuclear deterrence, the threat to use tactical and intermediate-range nuclear weapons in Europe, is either incredible or, if it ever takes place, could very well lead to an uncontrolled escalation of nuclear war. So that's a threshold that cannot be crossed. In the meantime, you've got nuclear proliferation taking place all over the place, most importantly in Iran. And let's not forget all the things that we've been worrying about for the past 15 years. Rogue nations like Iran and North Korea nuclearizing, dominating or trying to dominate their regions, terrorism. All of these things are still very much out there. It's not as if we can just forget about them. And so what we really need is to recalibrate our alliances along the lines of what are the challenges that we all face in common right now. The pandemic gave us a very good opportunity to do that, which the whole world blew. Every nation ran in its own direction. It was uh, unsuccessful. This war with the Ukraine and the potential global escalation and repositioning of Russia and China and the like is another opportunity for the Western world to show leadership and call a timeout, get to the table with the people that we don't agree fully with, and acknowledge our disagreements, but build a foundation of common interest on where we do agree that there are common problems. I'm talking about climate. I'm, I'm talking about health issues. Basically, everything that transcends borders, which is everything now, it's, it's, it's economic concerns as well. But the one thing that we know is that the historical reasons for the Westphalian political nation-state system, which was a rivalry between countries for territory, for food, and then later for ideological reasons, those reasons are no longer valid. There's enough. We live in a world of abundance, which has been granted to us by our own innovation and technology. So we should start from that and start to lay out the positives instead of labeling and vilifying anyone or any nation that has slightly or even significantly different ideas from us in, 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 in some respects. I, I see the younger generation, many of whom, I mean, the you know, relatively younger generation, people who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s now, as having come of age in an environment very different from the environment in which people who are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s came of age. In the older generation, you had extremely high levels of technical specialization, and that's and you had to compete and keep information proprietary. In the younger generations, there's been so much information and so much, so much knowledge. It's been a challenge for everybody to sort through, so people have learned how to collaborate. When we take those skills to the national policy level, and to really to any, any level outside of our houses and our daily careers, those collaborative skills can be used on a global scale to define what needs to be done to solve common problems of global scope.
so what I find interesting here, Dan, is that on this abundance point is that it counters the narrative, which is out there quite a bit, which also we've talked about on these spaces before around scarcity, around commodities, in particular food with wheat and what we've seen with some of the prices of various staples. And it's an interesting different take on it. I, I just did, did this quick look on Google, but even going back to this idea that maybe the, this narrative that food is is scarce is not valid, that there's still plenty of food no matter what happens uh, with Ukraine. The average American, I just saw this stat on Google, uh, consumes 24% more calories than they did in 1961. And we know, we know it's an overweight nation. So yes, there's plenty of food and prices might be higher, but there's still food out there. It just seems to be more of a rebalancing of, of uh, who gets the calories and who doesn't. I disagree. I think there's plenty of food, what we've done right now. I mean, take, take, take food and oil, right? The things that are, we're experiencing inflation over because of the conflict with Russia over Ukraine. I mean, oil is a very good example. You have a NATO member, Germany, completely reliant on Russian oil. You have the United States, if we all remember, as long ago as six or eight weeks ago, Basically, oil companies were uninvestable. The shale business was going to zero because you have ESG influence from BlackRock and others who are saying, and, and, from, you know, and from, from pension funds and the like, who are saying, we're not putting money in oil because oil's bad for the climate. And so we've created our own supply shortages for all good reasons, but we have enough and we are developing with technology enough renewable resources to deal with oil. It's just everything that's happening right now is transitory. If you look, for example, at uh, Powell at the end of 2018, was getting ready to raise interest rates because the economy was doing very well. Powell got bullied by Trump into deferring rates going higher. And then we had the pandemic. Okay, Coming out of the pandemic, Powell made the call that inflation was transitory. It had to do with pent-up demand, which was deferred through the pandemic for all good reasons, and that we weren't particularly worried about inflation. Yellen ultimately agreed with that. And then the Ukraine war hit, and now we have real inflation, which could be sustained as long as this conflict. But the point that I'm making is it's not a point, it's not a matter of not having enough. It's a matter of fighting like children and inhibiting the sharing of the resources that we do have. So, I, you know, I, 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 was, I was very successful when I was running the hedge fund at, at understanding what China was doing. And I had this strategy, which was called shake hands with China. Get in front of what China is buying at that time. And this is about 10, 12. 13, 14, 15 years ago, okay? At that time, it was, you know, commodities, mining, uh, iron ore, steel, and the like. I still have the same general framework of thought of we want to be long things that people need for whatever reason, even if they're artificial reasons, which is, a, you know, which is a risk of buying agricultural commodities now, because as you saw yesterday, when people were talking about Peace in uh, you know peace talks with Russia, we we dropped. Okay, so we have the it's a, you know it's a, it, it to me investing is a matter of understanding what's going on in the world, 
setting your own time horizon for your investments, which unfortunately is defined by our investors in the terms of our investment entities, which is part of the reason why I got out of the hedge fund, because you can't invest long or relatively long with short-term capital. If, if you have m- monthly redemptions, people are looking at what your daily marks are and they're they're keeping score that way. If you're investing for five years, ultimately it doesn't make a difference. So when investing our family assets, if it goes down and I believe that nothing's changed, it's just a transitory matter, I'd rather be buying than selling. The one thing I've done in, in digital assets is I've traded, uh, you know, I've, I've traded Coinbase because, because the good thing about, and the reason why you have JP Morgan and all these financial institutions involved is because the sell side makes money regardless of whether the buyers or the sellers are making money. The sell side is a great business, but I'm not sure that I want to be a holder of an asset, any cryptocurrency that cannot be used as a medium of exchange for any technical reason. Now, ultimately, those reasons will be will be resolved, and maybe it becomes more interesting. Stable coins, I think, are interesting, but that's just a digital manifestation of fiat currency, not the original reason, the original rationale at the bottom of the 08 financial crisis for the creation of, of Bitcoin, and I believe that blockchain cloud-based settlement uh, is a an efficiency creating good for society development but if you separate it from digital assets from bitcoin from the cryptocurrencies you, you don't necessarily need a you know global trustless blockchain uh, you can have private uh, cloud-based uh, transactional settlements i understand that blockchain was originally created in service of uh, Bitcoin, uh, in order to, you know, to, to to generate the Bitcoin, but as I said, until we can establish that, in my view, anyway, and I know everybody has a different view of this, until we can establish that Bitcoin can be used as a medium of exchange, I don't really understand, and I've had hours of discussions about this, how we can think that it's a store of value. You're, you're talking on my heartstrings with that, Dan, because I, I mean, that's something I often talk about and joke about quite a bit on, on Twitter here. I have to say that at the present time in the present environment, I don't have a high degree of confidence that the United States Congress can accomplish very much of anything. And that's a function of the polarization of our political environment. Um, you know, we can talk about it for a long time, but I, I you know, I've I've watched the testimony. You know, I've watched the testimony of you know Zuckerberg on Facebook, and the level of comprehension and attention, at least in 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 full congressional hearings, is is really disturbing. So, do I think they can? Do I think they they will be able to? create sufficient regulation to allow digital manifestations of of, of fiat currency, like a stablecoin dollar, which would be productive? Yes. Can they do more? 
I don't know. What do they really need to do? I mean, if people want to buy and sell imaginary assets whose only use, in my view, for real life is in the metaverse. I mean, you can go buy advertising and play games in the metaverse if that's where you want to live. And you can use digital assets, you know, cryptocurrencies to do that. If they want to do that, that's great. I mean, go ahead. To Mike's question, where does digital assets fit into the global economy? I actually believe that the world is in a long-term de-dollarization posture, strictly because more and more commerce is being done by China in particular and other countries. Now, Russia's trying to get in on the act and sell oil in denominated rubles. China has been working on selling oil, or sorry, buying oil from the Middle East in in Wuhan for a long time. Oil purchases and sales have been what's been underpinning the dollar as a reserve currency for for you know for for decades now. I think that people are starting to migrate to other currencies because that's where the financial power is migrating to. And I, I'm not really sure how I feel about it. I'm just making that observation. There are a lot of people who say, don't be silly. The dollar will always be the world's reserve currency because, you know, there's a problem with convertibility of the ruble. There's a problem with the, you know, with the, sorry, of the, of the yuan. There's a problem with the Chinese, you know, with the Chinese system. All of it is insecurity. Like what's happening among countries is no different than what happens in your own house. People feel insecure and and they feel threatened by other people. We have we, we need to grow up uh, as leaders, and we need to really get around the table and just simply start to do the right things, and everything else will work out. I mean, I'm ultimately optimistic, but I'm optimistic in the voices that are on this call, who are of an age cohort that is younger than the than the voices that are that are in control of industry and, and government. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. It's interesting you mentioned that the second time now we've heard about the importance of oil to the reserve status of the U.S. dollar. Yesterday I had uh, Anas Alhaji talking about how that link is so critical and also why it's very hard to unlink, right, for a, a variety of reasons. So I, I am curious on this point of this sort of secular move towards de-dollarization. How does that fit into the way the dollar has behaved for the last year and a half? And I know that's a very small time frame. But one of the things that's been unusual, I would argue, post-COVID in the context of all of the stimulus is the dollar has been abnormally strong, even with the Fed just starting now its interest rate hike cycle. So talk through how that de-dollarization plays into what may be happening just directionally now. So I think we're I think we're, you're talking about the difference between secular and, and cyclical. 
There are a bunch of different reasons for the dollar being strong, including the anticipation that the Fed would be the first to raise rates. And we already know that that's the case. Uh, I don't. I know. I know. This is. I don't want to make this. I don't want this to sound the wrong way, because I know that we're we're all when we manage other people's money concerned about the short term. But I'm I'm worried about you know. For me, the reasonable horizon for anything meaningful in the investment world is sort of five years, and I think over five years, especially if we don't manage better coordination with the rest of the world. I think that the, the, the United States dollar, and I know this sort of heresy to state, I think that the United States dollar uh, will be diversified from uh, by, by uh, a number of different countries, maybe more than we think. I mean, when the Chinese, you know, the, the Chinese are not only buying in their own currency, but they will eventually, uh, you know, want to be remitted for their own uh, export sales in their own currency. And uh, I, I just the, the 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 more the larger portion of the global economy that China starts to assume, and it will by virtue of its size and purchasing power, uh, the, the 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 more they will be able to externalize their currency. And therefore, proportionally less, unless the pie is bigger, which I think it will be, the dollar will be important. I have to say that um, I I have never, you know, I have not in the last 15 years been particularly constructive on Europe because of the structure of the Eurozone and uh and the the currency mechanism and the fact that you've got a european central bank but you've got disparate governments so going all the way back to the spanish uh, you know uh and greece uh debt problems in in the in the wake of the financial crisis and even ireland i i, I think you got through it with QE, uh, but I, I think it pasted over a a structurally uh, challenged arrangement in Europe. So I, I'm not I'm not particularly bullish on on Europe. It doesn't have the resources. It has the manufacturing. Germany is is an outlier. England's got its own story, but you know Italy is you know is is a great country. I mean. Europe is a great place to visit, maybe even to live, but I'm not sure it's it's a it's a center of either entrepreneurial activity or 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 any anything that is uh, that is essential other than art and culture to the rest of the world. All right, so Dan, I want to go back a little bit to your career here for the the last eight nine minutes or so. Um, you ran a big hedge fund. You've been around for a while. Um, what was the biggest surprise you ever had in your management of your hedge fund? Was it some investment thesis that went completely awry? Was it something that you never saw coming that could have been a huge opportunity? As you look back at that, the time in your life, what was the biggest surprise for you? What I've learned, okay, is that in managing other people's money, just like in, in any other relationship, 
it's important to be aware of what your customer's motivation and horizon is. So if I'm investing with conviction, for example, in China's transformation to a consumer economy, you know, and I'm doing it for a few years, but my clients are doing it for a few weeks, that that doesn't work. So I think to those of us who are or have been in the other people's money business, I think it's extremely important to calibrate the structure of your investment strategy to the expectations of your clients. And all your clients have other clients. And if they don't, even in a family office, you know, the principal has his family, right? So everybody has got to be attentive to the requirements of of their, you know, their bosses, their PMs, their clients and their clients' clients. But aside from that, I, I can't honestly say that that I'm surprised about anything. The one thing that I am surprised on, okay, is, and and this is a, a you know a bit of a sideways answer to your question, Mike, but I want to make sure that I squeeze this in before we run out of time, is the fact that one sector, which is the most important sector in the United States economy, that's the healthcare sector, is not adapting more quickly to the technology that is available. Right now, in the United States, the healthcare system is working as it did 100 years ago. We find problems and we try to cure the symptoms of those problems. But we now have the technology to be able to understand diseases at the molecular level, at the transition point in their development, at the very beginning, long before they manifest as symptoms like tumors or in the case of Alzheimer's, misfolded proteins. And so the the providers and the payers don't really haven't really adapted to that yet, but when they do, which is really what I'm spending a lot of my time on in recent years, when they do, we're going to see a complete change in the healthcare system in the reimbursement system, and in the way medicine is practiced. And it's going to be to the benefit of your all longevity and health span as opposed to just lifespan. So I think there's a lot of great opportunities being offered by technology. We just have to address people's insecurities about change. People are, are, are hooked on things that they learned in their formative years. And certainly in the case of my generation, the world has changed an enormous amount in the intervening period, and people have to have to adapt and have to embrace the the opportunities that are given to us by technology. I, I will say, by the way, I think you answered that surprise question very nicely because the the surprise to me is always that you think you have an investor base that understands and appreciates what you do that would have the same horizon as you do as the one managing that money only to find out that words are very different than actions. And the moment that there's some kind of noise, suddenly whatever they said to you about their investment horizon uh, doesn't matter, right? And that's that's something that I myself, having run different funds, running my mutual fund, my ETFs, talking to investors, advisors, uh, that never stops surprising me, even though it really shouldn't because I, I've been through this kind of cycle before. And I will say real quick on the healthcare tech side, you, know, you and I both know inertia is very hard to break. So maybe for the last couple of minutes here, uh, what would you recommend policymakers do to try to 
accelerate that tech healthcare integration because there's a lot of people making a lot of money off of inefficiencies there. I, I think Chris, I mean, such as it is, needs to hold hearings on on the potential because the future of healthcare is not treating symptoms. It's actually understanding the patient and even the 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 individual while they're still healthy, personalized biology, and following the development of that biology from genetic and 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 epigenetic or environmental factors over a period of time to be able to detect differences before they become cascading problems that you're on defense fighting with poisons like uh, chemotherapy and radiation in the case of tumors or 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 the, or other medicines you want to intercept and you want to prevent illness and we have that capability right now and by the way michael i'm not i would not fault investors at all because investors have investors have their own their their, their own bosses and their own fiduciaries that's the essential problem so pension funds like, yeah, yeah, I think you're going to get great returns with a long-term horizon. And then, of course, if you have a negative year, they have to they have to account to their fiduciaries. Uh, and so I, I appreciate the, the dilemma that everybody's in all the way up the chain. But what we can all do as people who are in the investment business and who want to who want to uh, who want to who want to have have people benefit from the investments, uh, both tangibly and intangibly is i think you know we can we can continue to get together and talk about how we can uh create consensus with investors to take a a a more patient horizon from your lips to to god's ears i would love (laughs) for that to be the case so listen everybody that's doing for the hour certainly appreciate uh the time and those who have been consistently joining it really does mean a lot to to me, to my colleagues, that we've built a nice, strong audience of recurring people that come in, listen, hopefully enjoy these kind of conversations uh, in a non-Main Street type of way. Uh, Dan, first time you and I have done this, I really do appreciate that you spent the hour. I'm glad we got it to work. And everybody, please make sure you check my pinned tweet. I've got another space coming out tomorrow. And uh, everybody, enjoy the rest of your day. I am now going to have a cigar, given that I'm in old San Juan, and celebrate the fact that investors should not be blamed for their horizons and just kind of uh, go through that. So Dan, thank you again. I appreciate it. Enjoy, Michael. And thank you, everybody. It's been very interesting. I hope for you too. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Follow Dan. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com.
Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.